Well, good morning. Um, I have some news, uh, kind of sad, but uh, um, joy in it as well. But um, Kathy McMinimy, who's been part of our church for a long time, since 2000, I think, uh, and her family, who, who uh, Jace was earlier, but um, Kim, Dave, uh, Wallen are sitting just in front of us. Uh, Jill uh, at Peninsula. Um, they've, uh, uh, Kath died this week, um, aged 100. So, uh, and, and 100, and five months, and five months, isn't that lovely? When you're very young, you're counting the months, when you're very old, you're counting the months, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and one, she was with us just two weeks ago in church, uh, so quite an extraordinary woman. And uh, so the loss is massive, of course, um, there's, though she's got the hope of eternity, uh, she was a firm believer in the things of Christ, was singing Amazing Grace before she died, so that song we've just sung is a bit poignant for these guys. Um, Though there is all of that hope and confidence, uh, we know where she is, nonetheless it's a massive hole and uh, pray for the family as they come to terms with that loss. And many others I know are dealing with the same thing, so uh, we pray for each other in all of this. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for uh, Kathy's life. We thank you that you called her to yourself. Uh, she loved and knew you. We thank you for the legacy in her family and uh, the way you have blessed her so richly with many who know and love you. We thank you for the last uh, days, uh, time together, um, for the, the blessing that was too. And we thank you that um, we now know where she is. But we do pray for the family that please you would comfort them, that you would be their source of strength that they would grieve, but grieve as those who have great hope and great confidence. Uh, We pray for our time in the Word now, please, that you you would let it be a lamp to our feet, Uh, help it shape our thinking, our hearts, our minds, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, from the very first uh, start of church, so 27 years ago, when we uh, began, we began with a conviction to just preach through the Bible, chapter by chapter. Just take a book of the Bible and, and do what it says to do, rather than sort of picking topical, topical sermons and uh, doing the things we wanted to talk about. Though every now and then we do that as well. Uh, now, I love it. It's been, uh, it's been an important pattern. It's been a fantastic pattern. It reflects the significance of the book that we're dealing with, the Bible. Uh, Jamie did ask about the coronation. Uh, very interesting. We weren't, I wasn't intending to watch the coronation, but I got stuck. And, uh, and it, it was, there was something about it that was intriguing, wasn't it? But there was a beautiful moment, um, the sermon not so much, but there was a beautiful moment during the coronation where the Bible was presented to Charles by the moderator of the Church of Scotland. And, um, and he, uh, there was a Bible on a velvet thing, he handed the Bible or held it before Charles in front of millions of people watching a massive crowd in the uh, church building leaders all around the world, and he said these words, I give you this book, the most valuable thing the world has to offer. That's good, isn't it? And I dare say every minister around the world is using that line again this morning. (laughs) It's just, uh, it was a real moment. The British do have a way of um, doing pomp and ceremony, don't they? And it was, there was something very significant about it. Um, and so to go through this book week by week, just chapter by chapter, a book, the, the most precious thing the world has to offer, that we gather to wrestle with it together is profound and important. Uh, it's a great pattern, it's a great practice. Though it does create a challenge, which we might not otherwise have, um, 
because it forces us to deal with passages I don't want to have to deal with. Um, it takes us into parts of the Bible which you're left wondering, what's the point? And, uh, I mean, it's good in the sense that it makes us deal with passages that we would find too hard to deal with, we're forced to have to deal with, so you get the whole counsel of God and not just the hobby horses of your ministers. Um, But this practice means we have to tackle passages that look like they really have nothing to say to us, and that's chapter 8, verse 16. Um, Wonderfully read and all the rest... But there's nothing grand in this section of the Bible. There's no great memory verse. Unlike chapter 8, verse 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. A really wonderful verse. You'd stick on a poster on your wall, wouldn't you? That's a fantastic verse. But what do you do with chapter 9, verse 3? I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about this matter might not prove hollow. Stick that on a poster and see how that sells. Do you mean, like, and after this, what song do you sing? What's the song you're going to sing after this passage? You see, it, it, it doesn't appear to have a great deal in it for us because it's bound up with a very particular context. So particular, uh, it, it's caught up with an exact circumstance and situation in the first century uh, dealing with that and we're just watching on as Paul engages with uh, this church at Corinth. Just remember the context to put you in the picture. Up until this point... Paul's been talking about a collection that he's been raising from the Gentile Christians uh, in Macedonia and down in Corinth and so on to be sent to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem because there's been a famine that they've been suffering. We looked at this last week, it's the first part of chapter 8. And this is a massively important work, it's a spiritual activity because this is the spiritual blessings come from the Jewish people to the Gentiles being returned with the material blessings. There's a very significant thing going on. Um, And in the first part of chapter 8, he writes to stir them to this collection because it seems like they'd started wanting to give, then they'd lost the energy and they'd gone home and forgotten all about it. And so Paul wants to stir them back to this task again. That's the first half of chapter 8. He comes back to stirring them again in chapter 9, verse 6, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks' time. As Jamie said, we'll be looking at Mother's Day next week. It'll be a special time together to celebrate and talk about mothers. But a week after that, we'll come back to it all again, the wonderful, beautiful thing that he talks about. Between those two sections, though, he gives all these details about how the collection's going to be handled. Yeah, so, so come with me. So verse 16, he tells, us about, he tells them about Titus. Titus has the same concern for this collection. And you go, well, that's great. (laughs) What do we do with that? And then he tells them, verse 18, that um, uh, Paul and the other churches are sending along with Titus the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. Great. 2,000 years ago, Titus and a bloke went to Corinth. Uh, And this bloke was an impressive guy. We don't know quite who his name is, though. If you go back to Acts chapter 20, verse 3 and 4, you'll see some names mentioned who are Paul's travelling companions, which may well be one of these men. But then he actually tells us in verse 22, he's sending along another one, another brother who's coming, who for many years has been shown to be zealous uh, because of his great confidence. So we've got three people, Paul tells us, who are going to the Corinthian church to take the money to Jerusalem, uh, and they're chosen by the churches to do it. Um, Great. Now, what do we do with that 2,000 years later? Well, a lot, actually. Um, It is a very important word, and I'm going to suggest this. It's an important word about human nature, about human nature among Christians, and about, therefore, how we should live knowing what we're like. And finally, the victory of the gospel in all of that. Let me look at 
this again through that lens. Look at the nature of his plans because there's an assumption operating behind his plans for this money. Verse 18, he's sending the brother who is praised for the service in all the churches. Verse 22, sending another one along, another brother who is proved zealous uh, and has great confidence, and Titus. So that he's doing all of this for a reason. Look at verse 20. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. This is massive. He wants to ensure that this activity, this moving of money from Corinth, Macedonia and so on, across to Jerusalem, he wants to make sure that that movement of money uh, honours God and avoids any criticism among men. Because when you're dealing with money, there are massive risks. Because humans have problems with money. Because we have a problem. That's what's going on here. So there's two uh, concerns that Paul has, I dare say. One is uh, that given a chance, if we just sent someone with the money from uh, you know, Corinth across to Jerusalem, or wherever you, you map, from Corinth across to Jerusalem, if we just sent someone on their own with the money, what might happen? There might not be much when it gets there, that's right. Um, So the the potential for someone to slowly steal it, fraud and so on. Um, Paul is aware of that. But he's also concerned about the reputation that he has among the Corinthians and other church people and the way this is managed and the possibility of the critique that might be brought against him. So Paul has two concerns in mind. I get this from verse 20, 21. He is taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. I think what he's saying in the eyes of the Lord, he wants to make sure that whether people see it or not, the right thing's done with the money, that the Lord sees that the right thing's done with the money, that someone doesn't steal it. And so therefore he ensures that there are not just one, there's not just one person, there's three people who are carrying the money, so to remove temptation. Um, But he also wants to be seen to be doing the right thing. He wants to make sure that there are no possible accusations against him in the way this money is looked after because he's very aware that the Corinthians are prone to bring accusations against him. Um, you know, if you come back to chapter... Actually, let's have a quick look through this. Come back to chapter... Flip your Bibles. Back to chapter 2, verse 17. Swipe, do what you do. Verse 17. Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit... On the contrary, we we speak before God with sincerity as though sent from God. He's having to say this to the Corinthians because there's a potential that they're accusing him of peddling his ministries to get money out of it, you see. He says in chapter 4, verse 2, something very similar. We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception. Nor He's concerned that they think he is. You get in chapter 7, chapter 11, chapter 12, the Apostle Paul defending himself, saying, we're not about your money, we're not here for money, that's not our big agenda. And so he's conscious that if he, if he just takes the money across to Jerusalem, the very easy accusation that will come from the Corinthians and others is that he's used it for his own ends. So he sets up a careful process to make sure there's no theft, 
and to make sure there's no room for accusation. Now, does this not sound very modern? Isn't it interesting? And what stands behind all of this? A very healthy view of human nature. A very pessimistic view of human nature, including Christians. Paul is fully aware that humans being what we are, even at our best, are always at risk of falling into sin and at risk of being quick to judge and condemn others if we find the opportunity for it. He knew that given a chance, a human with the right opportunity, pressure and circumstance would give in to sin, even a Christian. And so it's not just one person who takes the money. Now this is massive and it's critical for us today um, because we are only one opportunity away from sinning. Christians are still sinners. Critical lesson for us in our time. We live at a time of great confusion, I'd offer. Um, I think we live at a time where there's constant mixed messages about what people are like. Um, on the one hand, there are massive efforts in our community to build accountabilities and checks and minimise power uh, because we're very sure that people in power will abuse that power. So we've got all kinds of slow things to make it all work properly so that no one's got an opportunity to miss. All of that's happening, we work hard at that. But on the other hand, we're sure that humans are basically good. And inside every person is a beautiful, honest, kind, well-intentioned butterfly waiting to emerge from the grub. You think that's part of our world as well? So for kids, we have this sense that, 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 you know, in their heart, they're just this beautiful, wonderful... And if we can just give them space and not do anything, they'll emerge to be this amazingly integrated person. You know, I, um, I did some quick research on this. I uh, googled um, memes on human nature and uh, how to encourage people to be better. So you can do the research at home yourself. It was very heavy. Uh, I just googled it. But here's a sign in the city of Minneapolis on a, on a fence and it says this, Attention, you are wonderful and deserve every happiness. Now, you've got to wonder why that sign's there. Who, I mean, putting aside the fact, are you wonderful and deserve every happiness? There's a question to ask. But why put the sign there? Because I think as a community, we believe that if we can just say positive things and warm things and affirming things and only affirming things, then everyone will emerge to be kind and loving towards each other. And so there was another meme that came out about a plane trip with a man and a woman. The, um, the woman was very anxious about takeoff and landing and so on. And this picture was of him holding her hand and talking her through the experience so that she'd cope. And the bottom of the caption said, this is just people being people. How do you... What do you think of that? When people are just being people, what emerges? Greed, selfishness, ambition, racism, oppression, hostility and some nice moments. That's people being people. But where's a community are in this kind of bind? Celebrities sign off with a constant affirmation about how beautiful we are and all we need to do is believe in ourselves. Um, now, two things. It seems to me that our mind is that people generally are wonderful and beautiful and it's only a certain kind of person who's the problem, the powerful ones. 
You know, the difference between good people and bad is how much power you have. And if we can just stop the powerful people ruining things, the rest of us will emerge wonderfully. How naive. Um, Notice this with Paul. To make sure that it's done right before God and before men, he sends a brother who is praised by all the churches. And verse 22, another brother who has proven himself. And I take it the main reason is that there'd be no accusation from the Corinthians about how this is managed. So they need to be, they need to be men who are, have got uh, tested character. But I take it too, he's sending three because he knows that any one of them, Christian though they are, with a lot of money and time, would steal it, would give in to temptation. Brothers and sisters, this is important to grasp for many reasons. You are, as a human, capable of many beautiful things. You can do really kind things. And sitting here, reasonably well fed and housed with a car, with a job, and you'll do lots of lovely things. But you put any of us under the right pressure in a context of deprivation and we would do exactly what others have done. You know... um, uh, tragically, Second World War, um, what happened with the Jewish nation, the population in Germany of the Jews sent off to the concentration camp, six million of them gassed to death. An horrendous, horrific moment in human history. One of the questions that emerged out of the, that incident was, what were the average Germans doing? Uh, it was the Nazis who were doing this horrible thing, but what were the, the aver- what's the average German in the street? Um, and the, the popular wisdom was at that time um, that they were afraid of their powers over them and were just doing what the authorities were commanding them to do uh, because of fear. But as research has gone on and on, there's been some material come out a couple of decades ago now, but long enough after the Second World War to get this correct. What, what emerged was actually they weren't afraid. They just had many decades of being set into a context of deprivation And the powers to be had pointed the finger at a certain community as the ones to blame for that deprivation and had painted a narrative around them and a character to them in such a way that they appeared to be evil. And so the population in general believed it and acted sincerely from their own desires to hand people over. Now the point to make there is not that therefore they were more evil than any other nation. That's not the point. What's the point? You put any one of you in that same context and though you believe you wouldn't, you would do the same thing. You put humans in the right context, frame, pressure, circumstance and we are prone to everything that others are prone to. It's only popular wisdom that suggests otherwise which creates great arrogance for modern humans. We think we are better. But the Christian message says something otherwise. It says, there but for the grace of God go I. When confronted with someone who is uh, sinful, abusive, there but for the grace of God go I. I'm prone to sin just like you are. Um, We live with this challenge in our current context with a kind of conflict around this um, you know, many years ago, uh, actually someone after 8.30 told me this, there was, a, there was a whole thing called the Age of Aquarius. Who remembers the Age of Aquarius? Okay, a bunch of you. Many of you will never have heard this because you're only like 
you were born in 2015 or something. But um, uh, the age of Aquarius, I, I think it has its roots further back in this, but it came out of a musical called Hair in 1969, where it talked about the dawning of the age of Aquarius. And the whole notion was that at a certain date in the future, and I think it was around 1985 or 6, and I can't remember the exact date, I'll tell you why in a second, but around that kind of date, there would be the aligning of the planets in the solar system. All the planets would line up, and that would bring the dawning of a new age of peace, love, goodwill. We'd no longer be selfish. There'd be this wonderful new age, the age of Aquarius, you see. Um, And it happened. It happened while Cathy and I lived at a place called Bronte, uh, you know Bronte, but uh, various circumstances, we were able to live in a unit just near the beach there and, um, and it happened while we were living there, uh, at a, right during one of the evenings. Now I was working with a church there and was being driven home by the senior minister there who was a very aged man, he'd um, been around Christian ministering the people for many, many decades, I think he was like 45, but um, <laughs> he felt like 70. But um, anyway, he was driving me home after a meeting and we drove down into Bronte Beach uh, where we were and there was, there's the beachfront and there's a massive park there, it was packed with people waiting for the alignment of the planets and the age of Aquarius, you see. And by the time we arrived, the planets had aligned, you see. And so we arrived and uh, I got out of the car and as I was getting out of the car, this aged people-weary man said to me, just go and check a couple of cars to see if they're locked. Do you get it? And they were. They were all locked. Which says, though they believed in the age of Aquarius and the dawning of a new time of love and goodwill to one another, they didn't trust anyone else still and locked their cars. I think we live with that kind of messed up confusion. We want to believe it, But deep down, we still lock our cars, get insurance, uh, make sure the police are well-funded. You know, we want to believe it, but we don't really believe it. But we want to say we do believe it because everyone says we should. And at least this massive shock that shatters us when someone does something terrible, especially if they're children. I know many of you have had your first child in the last uh, 12 months or so, the gift of COVID. It... um, (laughs) The the gift that keeps giving. The... um, But one of the things we notice is young parents often are quite shocked when they see this newborn child begin to emerge into a two-year-old and they say, what did we do wrong? (laughs) Well, you may have done many things wrong, but that's not why the child's like it is. The child is born like that, messed up, sinful, bent towards selfishness. Listen to Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15. Young parent, write this down. Proverbs 22, verse 15. Folly is in the heart of a child, but discipline will drive it far away. Children are born with folly in their heart. They're not born good that they suddenly get corrupted by the way we treat them. They're born with it in their heart and our job is to actually shape it out of them in the way we discipline. Do not be surprised that your child will hurt others, take from others, be rude, obnoxious. Don't be surprised and be ready to have to discipline them to bring pain into their life. Parenting, you know, is believing the best and being positive and expecting the worst and so disciplining. It's two things. That's why, interesting, the, the, the video, um, it's interesting, there is something in parenting where Believing in a person is a funny phrase, but it's, I, there is something compelling and powerful about having people believe in you, 
when that is understood appropriately, and I think that's what we're hearing, um, uh, that people believed in her. And I think what that's saying is that people had confidence in me, that I could do more than I was doing, that I could achieve something, is really powerful. And as parents, that you treat your kids like that is compelling and wonderful. But expect the worst as well. Do not be naive. Don't, don't leave your child alone in a room with their computer and the internet. That'll all go well. No, it won't. Now, all of this applies still to us as Christians. Becoming a Christian does change things. We have the Spirit of God. We are new creatures. But we still carry around the body of death, Romans chapter 8. There is still this, the members of my body that have lived in this world of sin and are habituated towards sin that undo every good intention. So that in the genuinely born-again believer, we are in conflict between the Holy Spirit of God and the sinful nature. That's, that's the way we are. This passage assumes this about the Corinthians. Paul assumes that they will be prone to accusation against him and he assumes that even the best of the men that he's chosen, if they were on their own, would be prone to danger. So he gets three of them together. He has, verse 22, great confidence in them. Uh, and in chapter 9 you see the same. Um, and yet, verse 3, he's realistic to know that they will disappoint him. Let me give you some practical applications of all of this. I'm going to give you four. The first one's a small one. They get bigger as we go along. The first one. On the basis of all of this and the basis of human nature, we as a church take great care with money, with staff pay, with accounts. Uh, When money is given, you'll notice there's a box at the door. We used to have it in bags before COVID. Uh, People, you can put money in the doors. That money is never taken by an individual on their own to be counted. It's always, there's always two people we require that get the money and take it and count it. You know why we do that? Because we don't trust any of you. (laughs) You see, we don't trust you. Um, And you know what? We won't let staff do it because we trust staff less. We take detailed records of all the accounts. The accounts get audited by an external body to make sure that there is no fraud occurring, the the accounts are done well. We've set up church with a separation of powers. So we do have pastoral staff, but we've set up a governing body that's made up of volunteers who are not paid, called church council. And that's elected by you. They manage our finances. They make decisions about budgets, not staff. This body um, does include the senior minister as the only staff member, um, but no other staff are allowed to vote in in that meeting. And when it comes to staff pays, the senior minister needs to absent himself. To ensure that the decisions that relate to money are not made by people who benefit from the money. Um, While on this, actually, let me rattle out a few more pieces in the same vein of this passage about transparency. Staff pays. Um, Staff... No staff member benefits from the giving to this church beyond the set and fixed pay rate that's determined previously. 
Don't imagine somehow that if we can, if staff can somehow drum up more giving, we'll get more pay. No. It's, it just means we can do more ministry because we can afford to do more things, you see, or fund what we're doing. Staff pay does not go up if the money gets given more. It might go down if we can't afford the costs of church, if the budget's not met. Uh, there is the possibility that we hold out that we'll need to actually cut staff pay, but it doesn't go up if staff money goes well. Um, uh, according we, the way we set pays in this church, church council does it, but it does it according to the ministry pay rates of a body outside of us, the Sydney Anglican Church. So we use their pay rates and take 90% of them and those pay rates are what we pay staff here. Now that's helpful because the whole working out of pay is a complex business and Sydney has teams that consider this uh, for a long, long time so we make the most of it. And just as an act of transparency for your own understanding, where that lands for us as staff um, is that we end up with pay rates around school teacher kind of pay rates. So school teacher, head of department, deputy, that kind of pay rate structure is what we end... That's where it ends up. And it's worth saying too, in our church world... There are no speaking tours that we use to secretly increase our pay. Now, I say this because we've just had, you might be aware, of a, a church failure um, in, in the Sydney context where the staff pays with a certain rate, but they would invite each other to their own churches to speak and pay them massive amounts for their speaking, which then became like an extra on top. We, we don't have, that's not our world. So I, I do speak at various things and uh, there was a, one occasion where um, I, I spoke at a week-long mission in a country region uh, for a bunch of combined churches and drove there, drove back, spoke for a week uh, and I got paid $200, which I was very thankful for, but in no way covered. I was not getting rich on the speaking tour, you see. Um, we have a policy that ministers here who get given honorariums for doing ministry elsewhere give that to church, don't keep it themselves. Reason being, we want you to know that, there's not, that, that it's your pay given to us that we live on, not your pay plus other things that are secretly happening. We want you to feel that it's, no, it's, we're dependent on you. Now, we have a policy of not paying spouses of staff for ministry. This is a complex one, uh, but we're working hard... So my wife is going to hate me saying this, but I'm sorry I'm going to, Cathy. Cathy has volunteered in church ministry for 27 years. She's given uh, tens of hours of work a week to the ministries of church, but she's never received payment for church from it. And we're, we're very glad for that. We love that that's the case because we want to be a church where volunteers invest heavily and uh, church doesn't um, uh, fund our lifestyle in some way. Gifts. We have a policy that staff voluntarily agree to. Uh, they don't receive cash payments and gifts from church members. There's some obvious problems with this. If the, the ones who tend to attract gift payments are the more visible ones, whereas in the behind the scenes we've got staff who, do, who actually make church work. Um, you know, people like Rhett and these kind of guys, you don't see much of. Kiralee in Sunday school and Joe and what have you, you don't see them. And they don't attract the gifts that so we just don't do it to make sure there's equity amongst us all. I had this very awkward interaction a few years ago. Um, there'd been a, every the, the week before we'd go on holidays as a family, one particular man would always come up and say, you're going on holidays, awesome, just want to wish you a great holiday. And he'd grab my hand and give me a shake, take his hand away, and there'd be 50 bucks in my hand. 
And, um, and I'd go, whoa, 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 where'd this come from? <laughs> and I'd say, you can't give me this. And so we'd have this kind of grapple and wrestle where I tried to put it back in his pocket and we fought each other over this money. And, um, and I had to explain to him, we, we just can't do that. We can't receive gifts. Um, and uh, what was lovely, though, that he wanted to give it to me. There's something beautiful about church. There's something beautiful about our church, friends. You are very generous. Um, but we need to set policies to make sure that we guard ourselves in all of these things. Now, why do I tell you all of this? Because it's important. We're transparent. Uh, we believe in the ongoing power of sinful nature, even in believers. And you need to know what we do so that you can be part of guarding us. Us together. Each year we have an annual general meeting. Come along. Where the accounts are presented, questions are raised publicly. You can ask any questions you like. First application. We need to be transparent and careful in the way we manage money. I'd love... Any questions? No time. All right, let me go. <laughs> I'd love to have time, but we don't have time. Let me give you the second. Um, the second application for all of this is that we need to learn to live wisely. The problem with, of sin, uh, temptation and the dangers of money, they're not out there with powerful people. They're with every one of us. Know this about yourself. Take care of the situations you put yourself in. Be aware of the fact that you are prone to sin. Don't go to places and put yourself in contexts where you are at risk. Now, it's not just money. Let me talk to men. This applies to women, but not as much, more to men. Men, do not kid yourselves that you would never betray your wife. Take care. If you're away on a business trip or just an over holiday, a surf holiday or whatever it is, if you're away, take care. The hotel room you're in by yourself, the late night pub, lonely, things at home aren't great, the temptations are real, be alert to them. There but for the grace of God go I. Raising kids, remember you are raising sinners, saved by grace, and they're mixed. There's many beautiful things and that flourishes in the context of you affirming them and believing in them and all of that. Want the best, hope for the best, expect the worst. Do not be shocked by what kids will do. Discipline them. It's necessary to breed folly out. Second, be realistic, live wisely about who you are. Let me give thirdly, how to deal with hurt in churches. You see, what do we make of churches and church leaders who have failed in this area of finances? Now, some of you will be alert to this, many of you, but as I say, in Sydney there's been a massive crash. We've got a, a very famous church that's um, been found to have all kinds of practices financially that are deeply concerning and, and probably are illegal, we're yet to discern all this, and there are many people bruised and battered by the experience. Can I just say this, in light of all that Paul says here and the nature of humanity, do not be shattered when born-again Christians fail morally. Hope for the best, appoint leaders that you trust, work hard to set accountabilities in place, but when they fail, don't be shattered. It's horrible, it ought never be so, they ought to lose their roles. But we are all still sinners. So if we fall, what do we prove? 
that we're sinners. You see, why did Jesus die? He died because sin is so deeply embedded in who we are that even our good deeds are shot through with sin, that we have no hope before a holy God. There's no way we can earn our salvation, gain our our standing with God by our merit. There's nothing we can do. We are fallen sinners. Our only hope is a saviour who comes from outside of us to pay for our sin on our behalf, to die our death, be raised to life that we might be raised with him, given a righteous gift, chapter 8, verse 9, that's not ours. When we're saved, he gives us his Holy Spirit, we have a new nature, but we still carry around this body of death, we must fight it, so that if a believer falls, it just proves that he was a sinner. She is a sinner needing a saviour so don't be shattered which friends means that we don't just need the cross to be saved we need the merits of Jesus to be constantly applied day after day because we remain sinners Romans chapter 4 Jesus God justifies us declares us right with himself at the same time that we are ungodly And we carry around in our bodies this sin. Don't be rocked. Don't be turned off church. Perhaps you need to leave that church. Perhaps not. But failure is indicative of our need of a saviour. Jesus is still there, faithful and reliable. And there are ministries and churches that are working hard at these things. Do not be shocked, shattered or rocked. So first... Uh, transparency about our life here as a church. Second, be realistic in the way you relate as a person, raise your kids and so on. Third, don't be shattered by the fall of Christians. Be horrified, not shocked, shattered. Fourth, what's the answer to all of this? The world only has one answer to the problem of human nature and it is to try and believe in ourselves, be optimistic, positive, try and be nice say only positive things and hopefully in that environment everyone will emerge to be beautiful, wonderful butterflies. It's nonsense. Yes, there is a place and power for believing in us. There's a place for that optimism and nurturing in kids particularly, in families, believe in your kids. But as a society, it's nonsense. The Christian message actually has an answer to the problem And it is the grace of God who has sent a saviour to bring forgiveness in the midst of our sin, to give us his spirit to fight sin and to give us a hope of the eternal future where there'll be no more sin. You see, let me give you a cooking illustration which is really dangerous for me. I've seen it happen lots, um, cooking. um, When you you cook a cake, and I was corrected at 8.30, when you bake a cake... um, (laughs) When you bake a cake, you normally use a cup of sugar. Is this right? If you accidentally reach and get a cup of salt and stick it in the cake, what do you do with the cake? It's got to go. It's got to be gone. Why? Because you can't pick through the cooked cake to get out the salt. It's so entwined and ingrained in every facet. You can't cut a bit of it out and get rid of it. You've got to chuck it and start again. Sin in human nature, it's baked in to our every fibre. 
You can't just cut a bit off and get rid of it. Our only hope to be rid of sin is a new beginning. And that's the promise of the Christian message. That the Lord Jesus has come to bring forgiveness and restoration, reconciliation, with the anticipation that he'll return a second time to remake us, to eradicate sin forever and to bring us into a new creation where there'll be no more sin, where we'll be the glorious humans that he intended for us to be, where we'll join together with Kathy and others who have died in the Lord and we'll know the joy forever of no more sin, living the life that God intends for us. That's the Christian message. It's the only message that makes sense and it's the one that gives us incredible heart and hope. Is it one that you believe in? Let's learn to live it together. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you for the reality that you bring to us of what humans are like, our great need of the gospel. We thank you for a saviour. We thank you that the Lord Jesus has come. He has paid. He has made forgiveness now a reality between us and you for those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for the hope he holds out for us, the confident expectation of a new age where there'll be no more sin. Lord, help us believe these things, live on the basis of these things, and help us preach these things. Help us deliver these things to friends, family, workmates, that they might find the great hope that's found in Jesus. We ask this for our church, that in the years to come, it might continue to be a place that stands for and preaches these things. In Jesus' name. Amen.